Welcome to Dragon Talk. Woo! Yeah. We are super excited for today's episode. Yes. Oh, this yes. Is the I was I was trying to kind of come up with a number, but all the numbers were too close to being real numbers. How many episodes <laughs> have we had? Too many. 976,000. It is the official Dungeons and Dragons podcast. That's what we're talking about. I'm Greg Tito. That's Shelly Mazzanobo. Hey. Hi. Hi. And we are excited to talk about not only the cool, uh, amazing people that are in today's episode, including... Abaddon Kilbride the fourth, an amazing uh, TRPG creator and uh, DM and storyteller. Mm-hmm. We also have a Meet Your Monsters with Mackenzie Armas uh, yes. about our amazing space whales. We'll get to that, the Kindori. Um, but our book is coming out in December. Welcome to Dragon Talk. Inspiring Yay! conversations. Oh, see, I, oh, yeah, every time yeah. you say the title, I have to cheer. Welcome to Dragon Talk. Yay! Inspiring conversations for amazing people. No, what's the, what's the subtitle? Oh my goodness! Oh my god! Welcome to Dragon Talk. Inspiring conversations about Dungeons and Dragons and the people who love to play it. That's you listening to this podcast right now. Yes, we love this book. It was so fun to write over uh, the last few years and it was so fun to talk to all the amazing people we've talked to over the 300 plus episodes that we've had. This book is a celebration of not just the podcast, but like the community that is around this game and how it's grown over the last decade. And there's stuff about the D&D marketing team you might not know about. There's stuff about... Behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, setting up events, doing all the fun stuff that me and Shelly have done, as well as essays with, uh, you know, and about uh, many of our really fun guests that we've had. And, and I mean, honestly, we could write a hundred books about every guest that we've had on here because every one of them leaves us with something... Like they imprint, they imprint on our hearts. They really and do. Our short list of of <laughs> essays to write about was basically the entire list of people. Yeah, it was very, it was very hard to whittle it down. But um, how fun though to like go back and listen to some of those episodes and and it, I thought it was also really cool to read your essays about the same interviews I was in and like to see how it. It affected you and and the impact it had on on you because I think we both pull and different things from these these interviews and these guests and obviously with different life experiences things affect you differently. So totally, um, yeah. Yeah, there yeah. were definitely ones where I'm like, oh yeah, I definitely got something different out of this than Shelly did, and the same way you brought in uh, uh, you know uh, stories around you, you know your life and your upbringing and how it pertained to the interview subject, and I did the same. It's it's. Super uh, much about what D and D and what we've been talking about here on this podcast, which is just making lifting each other up and 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 getting those stories out there to be told and hopefully inspired uh, more people out there to a pick up this game and 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 create some of these fun stories, but then also create content around it because that's what this is all about. Yeah, and it's really cool to see just how diverse the creators are that we talk to, and it's right. like just a small slice of this community but it does show you the breadth of this community and how many different types of people were are are part of it yeah so 
So welcome to Dragon Talk. It is available for pre-order right now. You can get it from Amazon or get it from your local or pre-order from your local bookstore. Uh, It's from University of Iowa Press. And we can't wait to get the word out about it more. So we're going to be talking about it a lot over the coming months and being on a lot of other other podcasts as guests. Yeah. And uh, talking about our experiences in the book. So we hope you love it. Go ahead and pre-order it now. It would help us out, not going to lie, getting more people uh, interested in it before it comes out <laughs> on December 6th. Yeah, but, it's um, holiday gift-giving. Yeah, if you have uh, a loved one who you've always wanted to have them listen to Dragon Talk, this is, might be a nice way to do it. Or uh, get or have like a better understanding of D&D. Because like, it's not a book where we're like explaining rules or talking mechanics and crunch. It's like a collection of essays about really interesting people who all it, happen to play D&D. And it was written with the idea of someone who doesn't know how D&D works or how to play could pick this up and glean the basics that you need in order to understand the context of the essays and the stories that we're telling. So... Indeed. It is a good way to get people. If they don't listen to podcasts, uh, here's a great way to introduce them into into your hobby, if that's what you're thinking about. And if you do listen to podcasts like Dragon Talk, I think you'll still enjoy it. That's like a reflection of. You don't know. You don't know like some of these interviews left us in tears. You don't know. Literal tears. Some of them did. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So check it out. Um, but in the meantime, an ongoing story that Shelly's been talking about is dungeon mastering for children's. You guys, you guys, you guys are not going to believe this. Literally none of you are going to believe this. I'm believing what? it. Um, I've done something truly amazing. And I've, yeah? it's so amazing that I'm even inspiring myself. <laughs> so inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> I find myself very inspiring. Um, You've given yourself inspiration. So you know when you're scared of something and then so you just won't do it because mm-hmm. <laughs> you're scared, but it's something that you know is good for you and you want to do it. There's like a greater power driving you to it. Yeah. So, like working out or eating like working healthy out. food. Yes. Or like... Uh, like maybe taking the first step and meeting new people, like joining like a board game meetup club or like asking somebody out on a date or like approaching a cool mom at the park because moms are cool. Pre-ordering a book called Welcome to Dragon Talk, which or, you really yes, like for your could be Could be scary, but you're going to do it anyway. I literally found myself, like it was like my hands did not belong to me as they were cascading over the keyboard of my laptop, typing an email to my son's school principal. And I would like to tell you what that, I said, do you know if there are plans for enrichment activities this year? Because there haven't, there hasn't been for the last two years because of COVID. Um... I am, is there a process, and if so, is there a process for parents to submit an idea for a club? I would like, I I am the brand manager for Dungeons and Dragons. It's a personal and professional passion of mine to teach kids how to play D&D. And then I went into like a whole thing about why D&D is good for kids and learning and social emotional growth. And I I thought it would be a really fun thing to to start an after school club at Fairmont Park if the PTA was interested. And then I hit send. (gasps) And did they accept this rose? Literally, let's see. I sent that at 9.12 a.m. And at 9.14 a.m., same day, I got an email that says, this sounds fun. 
Wow. And then we were off and running. You guys, I am starting the first official dungeon uh, D&D club at my son's elementary school. It'll be open for only fourth and fifth graders. And I dragged Bart along with me. I just started CCing in my emails. Like, so my husband and I were both going to be there. And he's like, what? oh, yeah, okay. Once a week. Um, who do you think is the dungeon master? Like, obviously, it's me. You guys, it's me. I am being a dungeon master. You're doing I it. I am so moved by this desire to bring all of these kids into the world of D&D. Solely because we know how good it is for them. I, I am making it happen. I am putting my dungeon master skills where my mouth is. I can't just keep telling people to teach kids how to play if, if I'm not doing that too. This is the secret. You put it out into the world and it, and it happens. I made myself get teary-eyed thinking about, like, I'm not, this is how dopey I am about this. <laughs> I made myself get like tears in my actual eyeballs because I was like <laughs> thinking like of a kid like sitting actual there tears, like in your eyeballs in my eyeballs <laughs> wow. they were filling up that's and how I, I knew it that was, was like, real like a kid just sitting there in class like not even knowing how much this was going to change for the, like how Their great lives. this would be for them yeah. but also like what if they're into it and like it's Friday and it's like one hour before the bell rings and there's kids that are like Jingle, jingling the dice in their pockets, and they're like, "I can't wait to go play D and D." That's because of me. Like, I- I'm helping. Yes. Yeah, that's yes. gonna be you. And guess what? I've already like you know told some parents. I'm like, "Hmm, I might be doing this D and D club," and there's only gonna be like ten spots because it's just me and Bart. Yeah. And well, sign eight, me up. I want to be a part of it. You would be a DM too. Sure. Oh my gosh! And that's uh, everybody DM. Everybody do it. Well. They, um, but then you want to train up them like, to be their own DMs too. That's what Bart and I are already talking about. Like every day, we're like, okay, for our club, like we're already like we're gonna buy Aww. them all dice. We're gonna give them notebooks. Um, we're gonna have like a big and like a graduation ceremony at the end of ten weeks. Level them up, you know. We're 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 totally geeking out on this. But eight, there's like eight people, kids already interested in my <gasps> club out of my ten spots. And check this out: six are girls. Yes, yes. That's great. Yeah. I know. I'm so excited. So You're doing it. You're putting the 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 things out there and people are going to be loving it. And I, I love that you are taking that leap. And I will say 100% this is because of Dragon Talk listeners, because of you, Greg Tito, because of the guests that have talked to me, talked through my fears on how to be a DM. Yeah. And all those wonderful people that write to me on Twitter and are like, you can totally do this. And here's some advice on how to do it. I, You have literally lifted me up and pumped me up mm-hmm. to the point where I am like, that I am out here soliciting my services <laughs> as a dungeon master. That's so great. Oh my God. All right. So now we're going to need to be- get week by week uh, reports on what happens and mm. all the characters and all the stories. I am like already making t shirts and stuff. <laughs> I, I am so excited. What if they like mem- it? Are you a what member if- of Shelly's D&D Club? That's the Shellfire Club. The Shellfire Club. <laughs> oh my God. Did you really? Is that what you called the club? No, it just came to me right Dude, now. Dude, that's, I want a t shirt. I want to be part of the Shellfire Club. Yeah, I love we, right. now. It should be a parody of that T-shirt with instead of like the dice and stuff around it, it's just little faces of you, <laughs> like in, in different. <laughs> Hi, 
Hi. Oh my god, I can't wait to like be at parent pickup and my little kids are gonna be like, Mom, there's my dungeon master, Shellfire. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> now you have to create like a, a different um cosmology. So then you know, instead of going to the nine hells, you go to the nine shells. Oh my god. I mean there's already a Shelly Moo snail in Wild Beyond the Witchlight. I'm sure we can bring her back. Shellish rebuke. <sighs> Okay. <laughs> I'm into it. I'm into it. I love it. So fun. Anyway. That's great. Thank uh, you. We're, I mean, seriously, we're going to need reports. So each each week subsequently to this one, you're going to hear what's happening. Well, in the it, Club. it doesn't start until January. Oh, well, in January, look forward to it. But you are going to hear me talk about prepping because you know I'm going to yeah. over-prepare for this. Oh, totes. Can't wait. It's going to be so fun. I love it. I love it. I love it. Good for you. Good Thanks, for all Greg. those kids. They're going to learn so much about uh, life from you. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they're going to learn, but. Well, they're certainly going to learn about Kindori. There's got to be at least two of them that will be DMs. And yes, Kindori is a great way to lure kids. Yeah, they're going to learn into... about space whales, just like we <laughs> learn about them uh, in this upcoming segment with Mackenzie Darmus. Let's Yay! Everyone, let's welcome Mackenzie DeArmas back for Meet Your Monster! Yay, Mackenzie! Thank you so much for having me back! Yeah! We are so excited to delve into a particular monster type that is super fun uh, and meet them, get to know them, get to know everything about their ins and their outs and maybe how you can use them in your games. Mm -hmm. And today we are going to talk about our favorite spell gemmer space whales, the Kindori. Yay! I love my space whales. I gotta be honest, this doesn't seem like your type. No, this is definitely a departure from all the previous <laughs> episodes I've done where for, for once, for once, admittedly, I am doing a monster that is described as docile and benevolent and generally like a Cute. pleasant sight. Um, <laughs> but also I I just have a deep love for the Kindori. Um, one of my favorite movies growing up was uh, Fantasia 2000. And one mm. of the sequences they have is a bunch of these blue whales uh, swimming through the Arctic Ocean. And then towards the end, they raise up into the sky and they start swimming among like the northern lights and the stars. Oh, yeah. And I love that sequence. It is such a core part of my childhood in a very strange way. And so when I when y'all were like, what monster do you want to talk about? And I was like, oh. Wait, I can talk about my space whales. I love them. Aww. Ah. I've loved these guys ever since we showed off some of the images for Spelljammer. And they yes. featured prominently just swimming through the astral sea. And mm -hmm. I was like, that that image almost more than anything else that we put out for this adventure uh, just screams like Spelljammer to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that so was cool. like when I realized, oh, okay. Right? There's a little bit of everything happening mm -hmm. here. So so how would you, uh, so for people who haven't seen those images or don't know anything about what we're talking about, how would you describe the Kindori? Um, so the Kindori are almost exactly what uh, they are in the tin in that they are whales in space. 
Uh, they very much look like these massive blue whales, uh, save for the fact that it, they have multiple eyes that blink and flash various different lights. Um, and they don't have a mouth uh, because yeah. instead of uh, the how blue whales uh, take krill from the ocean, uh, Kindori derive their nutrition and their energy from the light of the stars and the suns dotted throughout the astral sea. Um, and instead of whale song, what they do is they will blink their lights in various different patterns uh, at each other as they mosey along through the depths of the border astral. So they're whales that know Morse code. Yeah, pretty much. Or uh, the flashing lights from uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, creepy. Yeah. Right? That's so yep. cool, though. Like, I love mm -hmm. that there's so many mashing up uh, uh, things in there. So how would you, I mean, immediately you think of like, oh, we can use Kandori as set dressing and doing exactly mm -hmm. what we're talking about, making people feel like they are in a, you know, an alien astral sea type world. Mm -hmm. But how, what are some other fun ways that we can use them in a D&D session? So... Um, I always like to imagine Kandori as kind of the, uh, like like you were saying, the indication that you are in a different world or it's really, they are great for setting the tone, uh, especially like that seeing them in the distance, just sort of moving along, swimming among the stars, especially because also they are massive creatures. Uh, so they will be about the size of like your spell jamming vehicle. And I think that sense of immensity and scale is just so wonderful to use in a campaign. Uh, the other thing I really love about Kandori is that canonically, um, they are miniature habitats. They are large enough to, in the uh, depths of wild space, uh, accumulate an air envelope, creating an atmosphere that allows creatures and organisms and plant life to thrive on and around the Kandori. So oftentimes Kandori will have uh, like scavers sort of feeding on them in the way that you have like those little bottom feeder sharks mm -hmm. that putter around in your bottom of the aquarium. Um, and I always love the idea of having like a civilization or a settlement that just lives on the back of a Kandori. That is something I've wanted to do for the longest time. That's so just cool. like a little farming settlement or a, um, a, a small little hut or like even just like someone riding on like a Kandori calf, uh, just like mm -hmm. one family or like a whole village on these different pods uh, or uh, a whole village occupying the pod of a Kandori, uh, Kandori pod. Everyone being like, you have like the, the ruler on the, the leader of the pod. And then you've got like whole farming villages on a whale. And then another one is just like the, like the residential area. And you can have people like jumping from whale to whale uh, to travel around and just being these beautiful wild space uh, nomadic cultures. That's so cool. That is, but like, do they mind having all of these hangers nope. on just, Canonically, Living. no. Canonically, they are very chill with it. Wow. <laughs> I love that. And then you can have any type of adventure mm -hmm. happen in that settlement, right? Whether yep. the Kandori themselves are threatened or the people living on it are threatened by something or there's rivals or factions within them. Like maybe there's a splitting off or a schism that happens mm -hmm. between the pods and then the, the whales or the Kandoris want to get back together, but the people don't want mm -hmm. to. Like, I, there's so much storytelling oh, possibility yeah. you can do. Yeah, it is so much fun. And the, the fun thing is, is that space whales as a trope is a very well-known and very common trope in a lot of sci-fi and space fantasy, space opera media. Uh, there are variations of space whales in almost like any... Uh, 
property that involves some form of space travel that I can name off the top of my head. And I think with the Kandori in our book, it kind of allows you to indulge in those fantasies and like create that homage to the uh, properties and the films and the movies and shows that really inspired you as you are creating your campaign. That's cool. All right, so they don't have any any song, but what do they what do they feel like? What is the texture of their skin to you? What do you what do you, what, what would what would it feel like walking on the back of a, a kendori? Uh, I so I mean, my immediate thought is they feel like a whale, and then my follow up thought is, what I've never touched a whale. What does a whale feel like? <laughs> <laughs> So, right? I mean, there's that. But um, I feel like they'd kind of almost have a... If you've ever gone to, like, an aquarium and you've, uh, like, you've gotten a pet like the manta rays and you kind of feel they're, yeah. they're smooth and rubbery, but they're also slightly sandpapery and coarse, I think it's that weird balance of rubbery, smooth, and very aerodynamic, but also with enough, uh, like, texture it so that the the skin itself can... Uh, be a good hold or a be a good surface for which like algae or space algae um, or other organisms to kind of find a groove and latch onto. Mm. Um, I can also certainly imagine like the equivalent of like space barnacles or like crusts of rock appearing on bits and pieces of the Kandori skin um, in what is it in the video game Subnautica, there are the reef backs, uh, which are so named because they are these massive Leviathan creatures, very peaceful, who have like little miniature coral reefs kind of growing on their backs, along with vegetation and uh, plant life that you can harvest in the game. And I've always really loved the image of like a Kandori whale with like a full on coral reef kind of cresting over its back. Mm. That is a great image. Yeah. I I've going back to the texture because I I feel like it would feel like a a pickle. Yeah, right. you know what? You know what? I could see that. Right, like a little like that texture of a pickle, kind of smooth but still a little bumpy, a little damp. I was gonna say like, <laughs> is it slimy like a pickle? No, are are kindori moist? <laughs> I mean, they're not technically in water, right? Yes. So, I mean, maybe there's like a little bit of atmospheric dew. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yes, Kandori mucus, <laughs> the valuable potion components sold throughout the entirety of wild space. Yeah. Like uh, what's the whale mucus called that's hardened uh, that is really value- valuable for potion ma- um, perfume, perfume making? You know what I'm talking about? A- yeah, Ambergris yeah. or something like that, it's called. <laughs> uh, See, but then that, there's a whole plot right there. Yeah, like there yeah. are people in spell jamming ships, who, Am- even though they're Amberg- peaceful. Ambergris. Amber. Even though they're beautiful, you know, yes. peaceful animals, Ambergris. they do hunt them for something. Oh, yes. Well, mucus. Yes. Uh, the, the entry in Boo's Astral Menagerie describes the various natural predators of Kindori, including dragons. Uh, and various people that inhabit wild space. So it is, unfortunately, space whaling does Aww. happen. But I think that could be a really awesome, like, uh, 
plot hook. Either way, like you could need to harvest some of the something from a Kindori, whether it is uh, the illustrious Kindori mucus or <laughs> something else that might be growing on a Kindori's back that requires like the constant motion of a Kindori swimming through a wild space in order to grow properly, like a special uh, type of coral or a special kind of plant life that grows only on Kindori backs. Um, and so you'd have to find a way to locate the pod and then retrieve it um, with or without, uh, because the choice is up to the adventurers, though I personally would be very sad if a Kindori died, um, with or without harming the Kindori. Uh, but I also think it'd be a super cool plot to go after people who are like actively poaching or hunting Kindori and are like yeah. mowing down the natural Kindori population. Um, or going to hunt down even like a lunar dragon or a solar dragon that has been uh, terrorizing a pod of Kindori that people need to keep safe for whether there is a symbiotic relationship with them of like living on their backs or harvesting their uh, the plant life that grows on them. Um, or maybe they are trying to uh, rehabilitate the Kindori population or uh, raise more Kindori calves because Kindori can grow very, very old. And if they need more baby Kindoris in the world and having the adventurers be tasked with, hey, protect this pod of Kindori and make sure they make it to their place. OK, and mm. they aren't killed by any wandering dragons would be super fun as well. I would fun. accept that quest. I would yeah. absolutely. Yep. I like I'm the ready. idea, too, of almost uh, uh, pulling on some of the strings of inspiration from Star Trek Four mm -hmm. about how Kindori might have a relationship with an ancient being and an ancient being needs yep. to have them mm -hmm. around in order to continue life as we know it or something like that. So the, the player characters need to uh, ensure their safety, not just for the good of them, but there's actually a symbolic and, and much larger yep. reason why they need to be there yeah. for the life cycle yes. of a certain... Yes. planet or, or, or yeah. space. And it works really well because canonically, uh, Kindori are celestial types. So they they aren't beasts. They are actually uh, celestial in origin. So they do have that uh, connection to the upper planes, yeah. which would allow for a lot of storytelling opportunities in that way. Right. Hmm. What would, okay, so we only got time for like one more question, but. Oh, no. It's a big one. It's a big one. What do you think an awakened Kindori would sound like? Oh. And or act like if they were oh, I feel like telepathically. I think in awakened awakened Kindori to me, they feel like the the ents uh to to reference Lord of the Rings, the ents of wild space. They are so old and so big that their perception of time, even especially in the astral plane, must be so warped. Um, and they must just be the chillest slowest talking mm, like the sloths in yeah like Zootopia. the sloths from Zootopia <laughs> like they're just they're gonna be so chill and so peaceful and I feel like they also have this kind of acceptance of like the natural cycle of things where they're aware that like when they die their bones will decay and then other people might use them to build boats and they have this deep understanding of the give and take of like the astral sea and what it takes to live there and support people. Um, I think they'd also just, they'd be so, I feel like they'd have so much wisdom, but it's also wisdom that is filtered through the lens of an old, old space whale who probably is not busy getting involved in wars and stuff. Um, it reminds me of this internet post of 
uh, imagining a an immortal who got stuck in a well for like 600 years because mm. no everyone thought the well was just haunted and so when the immortal comes out and everyone's like oh my god were you there for world war ii what was it like and the mortal's like dude i don't know i was in a well what was i supposed to do <laughs> i can imagine the kindori being like that like uh i wasn't on that side of wild space is that star gone really Oops. yeah whoops i like that star <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a good star. That makes total oh. sense. That's now my headcanon for how Kandoris sound. In, and they in all the, have, like, the most vocal fry. They're all, like, down here. Yeah. Like, yeah. Do. A little echoey. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, technically, the Awakened spell wouldn't work on them because they're Celestials and not a beast. Yes. But, you know, I think a DM would 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 allow that. Or it's a it's a it's yes. a leveled up. Awakened it, it would spell I think it would be less of an awakened spell because they do have uh, six intelligence, so it'd be less of an awakened language. spell. And yeah, it'd be more of teaching the Kindori language and or telepathically communicating with them. True that. True that. Um, which well, would be lovely. Now I want to go into space and telepathically communicate with the Kindori uh, on a granular level. Yes, I think it's gonna be, be fun. One. Mm-hmm. Be one with the Kindori. <laughs> Dude. That's all I'm going to hear now. Yeah. Dude. 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 So much vegetation. <laughs> vegetation. On my back. <laughs> so much mucus. <laughs> so much mucus. I'm passing. Ah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you so much, Mackenzie, for being here yep. and talking Kindori with us. I feel like we're all space whales on our journey together. <laughs> How can people find out or ask you any, any fun questions about, about D&D? Yes. Uh, well, folks, you can find me over uh, on Twitter at Mackenzie Lane DA. Uh, that is spelled M A K E N Z I E L A N E D A. That is where I will excitedly yell about uh, my personal D and D games, uh, other cool stuff that the D and D studio is producing, as well as just other random ramblings into the void, as per the usual on Twitter. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I always love talking monsters, and it was such a joy to explore the beauty that are space whales with you. Oh, oh so we fun. love it. I love Mackenzie. Mackenzie's monsters. Thank you. Oh, Mackenzie's <laughs> I loved everything about the Kandori when I first read about them when I saw the images and now knowing like having a, a, a settlement on the back of one on a pod of them on like, the backs of whales straight um, from the mouths of whales you know who would love the idea of saving a pod of whales or in, or like escorting whales to save school club yes, <laughs> yes kids in the shellfire club it's it's right itself it's all right there right Do there it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. These kids all they're they're like growing up in a school on a pod. <sighs> yeah. And then there's like a mean solar dragon that's trying to steal the mucus. <laughs> oh my god, they would love that too. Done. Done and see there you go. That's your that's your opening salvo right there. Uh, I love it. This is great. I love it. Write it down. Write it down. Good thing this oh, is yeah, being yeah. recorded for possibility. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so you can go back and what was that idea we had? What was that idea about whale mucus? <laughs> 
Ambergris, Ambergris. You got to come up with a more, uh, it's got to have more X's and apostrophes in it. Uh, oh, God, it's, these it's kids. a very valuable thing. Hmm. All right, well, we are now going to learn about so many other amazing, fun things from the mind of a very wonderful D&D creator. Let's give a listen. Hey everyone, let's welcome Abaddon to Dragon Talk. Yay! Yay! Hello. Hello, thank you so much for having me. We're really oh, excited. Our pleasure. You are a, uh, a, a D&D player, a dungeon master, a writer, uh, a makeup artist, which we're seeing. You guys uh, <laughs> listening at home won't be able to see uh, the amazing look that you've put together for us all. And if, uh, as well as a voice actor, you do so many things in this creative space. I absolutely love tabletops. They sort of found their way to me spontaneously and then consumed my entire being. So <laughs> if I'm awake, I'm usually doing something tabletop related or writing related at this point. That's Wonderful. Amazing. I guess we, we need hearing... to hear that, how, how they, they, they came to you. Um, so it's very important to mention that I went to a performing arts school for high school and mm. was so shy and so afraid of being perceived that I worked as a stage tech so I could be in the dark and not be seen by anyone ever. Wow. Uh, there are so many, just in that statement alone, I think you have both Shelly and I <laughs> as, as cohorts. I was the backstage, and I think, Shelly, maybe you, you were something similar to that. I was I have, on stage, Greg. Right, but the shyness... I'm impressed by that. I never had any intention of ever doing anything that would put me in front of people. In fact, I didn't think I was capable of it. Interesting. And then Q Times had a very quiet mm. casting call for an all-black D&D game. Uh, and a friend sent it to me and something said, just do the scary thing first and then be scared. So I applied and we are coming into our fifth season on October th 4th. Fourth, that's the Tuesday, which is very exciting. Um, they're some of my best friends now. Uh, mm. And it really did just kind of open the door to what I love most about tabletops, I think, which is not being afraid to be wrong. Not even so much looking silly, but not being afraid to roll poorly, to fail a check, to mm -hmm. uh, fail an interaction. Uh, it's something that I struggle with as a perfectionist. So it's been really, really good for me to kind of force me to unwind and stop taking myself so seriously. That is, uh, I think, a really important lesson for anybody to learn at any stage in their in their lives. Yeah. But definitely, uh, early on, I think the idea of not necessarily failing up, but just like failing, and then and then how to how to get up from that and and continue with either the storytelling and a and a D and D campaign or just in life, just being like, okay, well, let's try something else. Yeah. I think so. Like having that. Look, it's not up to to us. It's up to the dice. Like there is exactly. something very, very freeing about knowing. Like I am putting my best self out there, and if it doesn't work, it's not my fault. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Everybody it makes you. That. It does. You really do, and it just it does make you feel less afraid to try something, knowing I guess that you're you could fail, but the onus is sort of removed from you. I don't know. It Dice. creates a weird kind of bravery knowing that, you know, you can build the character and you can know the stats, but you can still roll in at one and fail 
Absolutely spectacularly. And one thing that I've been trying to learn both as a player and as a DM is to turn those failures into something that is still cool. Not just yeah. you didn't succeed, but you learned some other information or you made a new friend or what have you, trying to find a way or even letting them interpret their failure. Um, asking them on a nat one, what do you think happens to you? It makes it more collaborative and less me against them, which I really enjoy. Yeah. Uh, and my channel in particular is a very collaborative network. It's very much kind of everyone puts in their best effort. So I, uh, I appreciate when I'm able to soften a failure for them. Nice. Yeah. And your channel is called uh, Exquisite Corpse Presents. It is indeed. Uh, is that a reference to Hedwig and the Angry Inch by any chance? Uh, it's a little bit of reference to Hedwig and a little bit of reference to the surrealist game Exquisite Corpse, okay. uh, which was a lot of people who were trapped in cabins with Lord Byron would sit around and either start a drawing or start a sentence and just pass a piece of paper around and let everyone add to it. And when mm. I was looking at what I wanted the channel to be, that was very much the core idea. The idea that I might be the one running things, but it wouldn't exist without the other people who come and play games with me. So letting it be something that is very much a game of give and take has given it this really cool, homey, uh, all hands on deck kind of feel. I love that. I love any type of artistic endeavor that is less about the auteur kind of idea that there's like one person that is the, the 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 idea maker and everyone else needs to be subservient to that idea to a collaboration which i think is just so much more you get so much more um well a positive feelings around any project as well as better i think uh, uh projects like better better completed projects because you have this uh, this and it feels very much like a D and D campaign or a D and D party. Everybody's working together and bringing their own talents to it and making uh, the story and or project as awesome as they can. And I, I personally, as someone who is running two games alone on top of my channel, I appreciate so much that my players take that initiative. They are very, very invested in their characters and in each other's characters. So it becomes a it becomes a really cool thing where people are now homebrewing their own subclasses and we're homebrewing items and abilities together. And it's a conversation between us about like, who do you want this to be? But also, why did you pick this class? Why do you want to play this particular character so that I can give you chances to do the thing that you wanted to do? Mm -hmm. um, it has been a very big learning curve, learning how to be functionally in charge and still allow the fun to happen. But because of them, really, it's it hasn't been as hard as it should be. Mm. That's cool. Well, so I think a lot of people we talk to or that I talk to or Greg talks to that are really good dungeon masters, they do have a, they do spend a lot of time getting to know their players, getting to know the characters and asking those questions. Why do you want to play this character? Like, what can I help you discover or you know about this character through the course of the game but i i've played with some new people and i feel like asking them that question they would be like well i don't it just sounded cool but like how <laughs> i think it's important and i but i don't want to uh, overwhelm overwhelm or deter people from like feel like 
you know, a lot of people come into D&D thinking like, I need a costume and a voice and you're going to, everyone's going to stare at me. And it's, it doesn't have to be that. So how do you get to, like to the heart of the, the character in the player in a way that like is helping to draw it out and not totally putting them on the spot? My older sister um, is one of our cast members. She's also our community manager. But when we originally started playing our very first game a year ago, she had never played D&D before. Um, and there's a lot of that on Exquisite Corpse Presents. There are a lot of people who have wanted to play but not found groups or have played but not in an actual play. And that has been kind of a question because we have these people who are used to, you know, performing when they're playing mm -hmm. D&D. And then people who are literally just trying to get a handle on the mechanics. Um, what I've started doing is trying to kind of understand who the character is as a person without, before I even talk to the player, trying to kind of understand the concept that they have for them. And then I write out questions ahead of time that I think are relevant to the character. I don't show the player ahead of time. So uh, I'm actually doing meetings all this week where I'm using this formula. Uh, I don't show them ahead of time and I just sort of go through the questions with them in a conversational format. And it's not things like, what was your character's first kill that are kind of vague and nebulous at first. It's things like, what do they value? What do they believe in? What do they detest? How do they feel about their place in the world and how do they project that? And so it's it's kind of like mining or kind of like chipping something out of marble where we start with this big rough block and not a lot of context for what's going to come out of it. And little by little, by them being willing to suspend disbelief and think in the mindset of the character that they're building, it gives me enough about the character emotionally and mentally to kind of help them figure out what class do you want to be? What do you want this character to be able oh. to do? Wait, this uh, is before they even choose their class? A lot of the time, wow, yeah. Wow, cool. Um, usually with newer players, that's how I'll do it, to kind of just give them a chance to just play pretend and then we'll apply the mechanics. Yeah. With some of my more veteran players, it literally is just... You want to homebrew a subclass? Go for it. I'll approve it or we'll change it or whatever we need to and we'll play from there. But uh, one of the things that I love is showing changes in narrative through mechanics. So knowing who the characters are ahead of time and kind of what they want to do in the world that they are in helps me help them figure out what skills they need to do that. Um, so my sister is now playing a multi-class homebrew and she is a path of beauty barbarian and oath of aestheticism paladin oh, wow. uh, and it is a very specific <laughs> skill set yeah she, uh, she plays a reincarnated starlet from the 1930s oh my gosh she's the <laughs> goddess Amazing. of decadence and the silver screen so she's big hair very glamorous very dolly parton and trying to figure out what mechanics would be for that just based off that concept is impossible but by getting to know who the character of suki fei hollis is and what she values and who she was before our story started it made it a lot easier to kind of narrow down, okay, she's got a temper, so maybe we'll go barbarian, or she's very dedicated to beauty, so maybe we'll make that a core tenant of her personality. And that sort of shapes out what they're able to do mechanically. It seems to be a little easier than just throwing a character sheet at them and saying, yes. pick stuff. 
that is, is I mean, it's, so It's cool. very similar, actually, when, when I deal with very new players where people who have never played, you know, don't even maybe even have some board game experience to, to try to transform, trying to transfer their interest. And I try to use, like, archetypes. So I'd be like, oh, you can do, like, a Legolas character, you know, or you could do uh, this type of thing. And then, then we just make, okay, now you're a ranger, and we make things off of that. Um, it sounds like you're doing something similar, but just a little bit more specific and not necessarily drawing on uh, tried and true archetypes so much, but just like, oh, where are we going to find the niche and then find the mechanics that match that or create mechanics that match that if they don't exist. Yeah. With homebrew, it has gotten very, very niche. So there is a lot of just like, okay, what are how how are we going to make this a thing that you can actually physically do? Uh, but it has been really fun to say, okay, this isn't something that's standard in the book, but your character is the goddess of bees. So you can definitely <laughs> just call bees whenever you want to, right? And so yes. all of her items are bee-themed. Uh, she has a, like a set items, of... Yeah. Yeah, that's sort of what we do for for my major brand new homebrew campaign, which has blown out of proportion. It is now twice the size cast-wise that it was two weeks ago. Wow. We are uh, now operating on a completely different sort of system than we were before, and we have a bunch of people coming in as guest NPCs. As much as I love playing NPCs, I love having guests. I watch a lot of Critical Role. I watch a lot of L.A. by Night. And it had never occurred to me that you could bring somebody to the table and just have them be someone. Uh, and it's worked out swimmingly. Every guest leaves their own like texture in the universe that becomes a part of our master lore. And with homebrewing, because they are playing the type of characters that they are, things are very overpowered. <laughs> they're very, very overpowered because they're playing gods. But Everyone has a very specific set of things that they can do. And it's either been supplementing subclasses with items or with special homebrew abilities that are unique to them. That's so cool. I love hearing about the goddess of bees as well as Suki. I'm meeting with her right after this. Oh, that's great. Um, Your sister's character is named Suki. Is that right? Suki Faye Hollis. That's That's uh, so perfect. I mentally put me in. Like true blood. Kind I, of went, I went there too. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's so great. Uh, and so she's she's a reincarnated 1930s star, you said? Suki Faye Hollis was at the height of her career when she perished in an accident. Uh, she was on the set of Birth of Venus, and the giant clamshell that she was in malfunctioned and closed on her. Uh, so part of her story going forward is going to be to either find or retaliate against the family of the individual it's been revealed was responsible for that malfunction. Oh, nice. it was not an accident. Somebody it ripped was, that clamshell. <laughs> it was her very best friend in the whole world at the time. Dang. Okay, so wow. tell me, did, did some of this come through in like your, your interview? Like... Well, while you were helping her come up with her character, like, or did she come to the table with like, here's my backstory? It was a little bit of both. She she knew that she kind of wanted to play somebody very glamorous, someone who was very close. My sister has just kind of a natural old Hollywood glamour to her. So it was something that was a little bit more comfortable for her to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and little things, little nods to old Hollywood. Suki Faye's temper is a direct nod to Joan Crawford. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mommy Dearest is one of our favorite movies. Me so too! It's a lot of just little references like that that kind of compiled to create this entity. 
Um, and so everything about her is very particular. She just got a new item. It's a Tiffany bracelet of holding, uh, so she can shrink her items down into charms and put them on her bracelet. And that way she doesn't need to carry a purse. Amazing. Uh, a lot of things come kind of inherently from just me getting to sit and listen to them talk. Either Ugh. whether it's to me specifically or to each other, I take furious notes during an episode and try to make sure that the things that are important to those characters continually make it back into the campaign. And finding a Hetty Mavis and holding her responsible is very important to Sookie Faye. Wow. There's like a whole closet of wire hangers waiting for her. I, exactly. <laughs> so my brother and I also uh, love Joan Crawford and Mommy Dearest. And like growing up, that was one of our favorite movies. It was so disturbing to my mom. She was like, I don't our get state. why you guys are so... I shouldn't show... I'm going to show you. I don't, No one else can see this but you. But here is me and my friend on <laughs> Halloween one year. <laughs> I have to actually describe that photo to my sister because she is going to love will, it. I'll send it to you. Please. Um, yeah, we we were very disturbing that year in Halloween. For the, I know it's a podcast. You guys can't see it, but it was me dressed as Joan Crawford, literally living out my, my fantasy. Very convincing, too. Very convincing photo. Yeah. Oh, I have, like, waited my whole life for that moment. <laughs> but I was a kid, and I my grandma bought me a bathrobe with big shoulder pads because everyone knew I was so obsessed with Joan Crawford. <laughs> And my mom got me fake satin sheets. And like Incredible. They, they like scratched my legs when I got in the bed because they were like really fake. They looked like satin, but they were definitely not. And they were a little painful, but I didn't care. Like I'm, I'm so crawford. It's all about the aesthetic in life. <laughs> So I totally appreciate, I love you, and I I just feel like you and your sister and my brother and I would have a great time I think so, too. It's it's still something that we sit down and do. Every year for Thanksgiving, we sit down and watch Gone with the Wind because it's the only time we can stand to sit through the whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Reminds me of uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, pastimes when I lived in New York was a a drag show called Christmas with the Crawfords. (laughs) Amazing. <laughs> and it was supposed to be like the family getting together for Christmas dinner, but then was always, there was a lot of yelling and yeah, brandishing have, of wire anchors. I feel I like stories. I missed out. <laughs> it was I great. Have, I remember, like, actually, this happened at Thanksgiving, too, because <laughs> I had younger cousins. And my brother and I were like, let's go to the basement and play. And we played Mommy Dearest. And we made- <laughs> my brother used to hang me from a ceiling fan. I think oh that's just God. part of the resilience of childhood. <laughs> I don't believe like it definitely like toughened them. <laughs> they, That's what they, Joe Crawford would say. They they bring it up like every time we're together. You remember when you brought us to the basement hey, remember and hit us time? with hangers? And, my, and Mike and I are like, oh my god, we totally put couch cushions. It in was your soft. Shirt. You were fine. It was, it it was, was fine. <laughs> you were fine. <laughs> <laughs> and we built these wonderful core memories together. What's wrong exactly. with that? Exactly. You'll carry just that like, forever. Just like D&D, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, memories through amazing. play. Yes, wow. exactly. So I anyway. want to know, so after talking about <laughs> this, this amazing character, uh, I want to know more about the world building of this uh uh, show or this um, this the thing that's exploded and has much more uh, cast members yes. now. What's how does it uh, begin and end? You mentioned they were all playing as deities. Is that right? 
Absolutely. The show is called Divine Intervention. Uh, it it. is a completely homebrew D&D 5e campaign that follows the quintet, which is a group of five newborn gods. They were born in our first episode and they are now learning to navigate this second life and divinity. Um, some of them were human beforehand, but Melisandi, who is the goddess of the honeycomb, was in fact a bee in her previous life. Uh, a queen her, bee? A queen bee. Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, her soon-to-be probable girlfriend, Tara, was a butterfly in a past life. So uh, there is – it has been a lot of just me kind of sitting in front of my house, chain-smoking on my cell phone in Google Docs, typing things out. Uh, <laughs> there is <clears throat> the – World follows the quintet, and as they are kind of moving around, they're in this fictional kind of Night Vale-esque town called Colopsia. Uh, it's a magical town, so the stars actually dance overhead uh, when they're observed, only when they're observed, otherwise they do nothing. There are prayer lamps on every street that are lit and represent answered prayers. Um, and the relationship between the divine and the mundane in the game is very, very important. Gods are sustained by belief. So their main task is to find a way to find believers and to stoke that belief in a way that is healthy and sustainable. Um, so we have five players. We started with five players. My sister who plays Suki Fey, uh, Abby plays Melisandi, uh, my one of my oldest friends in the world, who I specifically asked to play someone very spooky for this game, is playing Blythe Rue Gubbins, who is the god of the unknown and the void, and uh, began in a coroner's office, uh, having just been autopsied. So they're Ooh. having a little bit of a different experience from everybody else in the gang. Um, oh, and then there are our star-crossed lovers, Faraj and Eindride, who are soulmates who came together from the 1300s. Um, and so that kind of core cast, and they all ended up very different because I just said, pick a domain, pick a domain and we'll wake and we'll make it work. So Faraj, who is the god of regret and the unspoken, actually homebrewed their class and they are a path of sorrow barbarian. So instead of raging, Aww. they sorrow. Mm. Uh, and so it's just a lot of very cool little things like that, that people have stylized for their characters, but the structure of the game is such that um, the the archivist, who is my storyteller character, narrates sort of what's going on in town and then zooms into their action and just sort of lets them run wild. So they meet different gods and don't realize they're gods or don't realize that they have gotten an invitation from the seven deadly sins. I'm really uh, mixing world mythologies as much as I can. Um, I'm fascinated by mythology and folklore, and that's really where this campaign came from, is I sort of wanted to do my own version of American Gods. Um, mm -hmm. And things exploded in our finale. We broke the fourth wall. The archivist actually stepped into the game and interfered. We had a 10-person PvP for our final episode. It was three hours, and we had one round of combat. It was one of the wildest things I've ever seen. <laughs> Uh, and as a result of that, someone split off from the core group and actually walked off with our villain. So we are now splitting our narrative for season two between the main group and this sort of lost lamb who has basically joined the Divine Mafia. Uh, and we'll kind of bounce back and forth between 
the villains, which are um, the elder gods of this universe, the first pantheon, they have, they're beholden by superstition and they operate under the belief that there is a limited amount of belief in the world and that every new god who is born into their domain encroaches on their domain. Mm. So there is something called the great devouring, which is the act of one god consuming another and assuming their domain and their powers. And that is what our brand new baby gods are worried about. And uh, they came to town in the, the very last episode of book one, and it did not go well. It did not go well for literally anybody involved. <laughs> and we will now be dealing with kind of the fallout from that after they've had some time to learn to use their powers and their new abilities and their level ups and sort of see where things have landed so far. Wow. Okay. What can a you tapestry. Do, can you do me a favor? Mm-hmm. Can you write this as a novel? This is I, such a cool story. <laughs> Thank I you. am so in. I am so in it. I, everything you're saying, I'm like, oh, it's even like more amazing than the next. Uh, I'm actually building sort of like a chat book source book okay. for this universe so that other people can jump in if they would yes. like. Uh, I would love to run more games of it and explore more corners and like classic Greek monsters and classic cryptids. I just don't have enough hands. So I would love for other people to get to jump in and play. Um, it's And again, it's been a very collaborative thing. I had a lot of things that were concrete ideas, places, names for things, gods that would be available. But a lot of the universe itself has come specifically from the decisions that the player characters have made, questions they've asked that wouldn't necessarily be things I thought of automatically. Yeah. Uh, and by our guests who have just been so phenomenal. I am notorious for sending out like eight pages of backstory for an NPC because mm -hmm. I'm very into lore. And every single one of them has been a phenomenal sport, really just sort of dived into the material and internalized it and brought it back to our players as something that was new and transformative for them. And that's part of the reason for the larger cast is that both our players and our guests have begged for them to come back for this season. So the split narrative allows me to have a lot more people on screen at one time. Mm -hmm. And so we've got the God of music who writes the music of the universe, who is one of the most phenomenal players I've ever seen and a DM in their own right. It's not um, very Manilow, is it? Sadly, no, <laughs> but no, I'm working on it. <laughs> Soon. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's been really, really incredible because I, as a writer, I spend a lot of time alone in my room with a notebook. Yeah. So it's surreal and humbling and so incredibly lovely to get to see these things become real to people and to see the players and the guests really feel like they are a part of Colopsia, feel like they have lived there, like these these tragedies are their own. It's it's very cool and they have given me a lot of room to create a lot of really cool stuff. Oh, and what yeah. I like about this too is that it is certainly fantasy, right? It's certainly and it's like, you know, weird and strange and 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 coming up with uh the reasons for why uh these gods are the way they are uh is is definitely in the realm of fantasy, but it feels like you're setting it in a generally more modern uh setting, right? Like it's a modern mm -hmm. town. It's in 2022. It's in yeah, right? And so you get all those ideas and themes that are occurring to people right now, similar to the way American Gods did, right? Where they where where Neil Gaiman took all the 
the themes of mythology and folklore. And then it was like, okay, what if that was happening right now? And so I love playing with that duality, right? Where Because so much of, 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 of D&D play specifically is like, oh, yeah, you're going to go fight orcs in a castle, which is, you know, you can't necessarily have those exact uh, uh, things going on, right? So here's, here's a nice way to, to bring in um, so many pe- different people's backgrounds and stories and things that are, that are you know, happening to, to our, our modern society now. That's been really fun too. It starts in 2022 and obviously our quintet are the ages they were when their previous life ended and, you know, figuring things out in the modern day. But the way that this universe works is that new gods are created by this overarching figure, the designer, who creates new gods based on human need and shifts in belief. So as we get further and further down the timeline, closer to now, you have gods of mental illness. You have gods of um, home and housing that showed up around the time of the housing crisis in 2008. (laughs) You've got gods of self-evident truths of the universe. Uh, So it's been uh, really cool because the older they are, the more kind of high fantasy D&D I can go with their weaponry and their ideals and sort of how they operate in the world. So even though it is a modern setting, the older characters won't use cell phones. They won't use computers. They just have straight up magic mirrors because I wanted there to be magic mirrors. Uh, <laughs> As they should be. Yeah. Yes. So it, I, based on kind of where they fall in this very long timeline, I have options. I can go more modern, more... Suki Fei has a gun as her weapon. <laughs> she has a pistol in her purse. Um but I can also kind of go back to like the age of chivalry and heavy armor and javelins and things like that. So cool. Yeah. And I second what Shelly said. There, there would be great to take your, your writer brain and, and write stories in this world. I love it. Mm-hmm. That is something I hope very much to do for this and my other homebrew universe. Uh, the other universe is something I've been working on for almost 12 years now. It'll be 12 years on November 1st. Wow. And that is a series of seven different drafts of a novel. Uh, So I I very much believe in earning the ending. And the first seven drafts didn't do it. They didn't earn it. So I just keep throwing it out and starting over. Wow. That's amazing. I don't have that muscle in my brain uh, to keep keep going at it. But... uh, but you were also writing a, an anthology, right? Uh, the Sticks River Anthology? Yes. Um, before I got the chance to do this campaign, I uh, realized I'm absolutely obsessed with classic folklore and mythology. Um, I'm actually switching my degree to classics because I just love it so much. Awesome. And I am fascinated by the idea of figures in history that we see as villains who never really got a chance to speak for themselves. Um There's that old quote about sympathy for the devil and how no one ever asked him his side of the story. So the anthology comes from that point of view. Um, Each of the poems that's in that anthology is from the perspective of a different Grecian figure. So Helen of Troy, um, the first one is Prometheus. There is Eurydice after the whole situation with uh, with Orpheus. Ares is there. Um, and it is just kind of each of them voicing their inner monologue after centuries of being misconstrued. Icarus gets to talk about how him flying too close to the sun wasn't a matter of hubris. It wasn't a matter of 
recklessness. It was a matter of finally being free and wanting to get as high as he possibly could. And mm-hmm. all of his thoughts kind of on the way down. Um, and it's been a really interesting exercise in voice. I'm glad I did it before I started DMing because it helped me kind of learn to switch those parts of my brain. So each voice sounds organic and unique. Um, and yeah, I'm hoping to re-record, remaster it finally. It is on Bandcamp, but it is terrible quality because it's before I got this mic. So <laughs> I will be re-recording everything and uh, re-releasing it. And there are more. There's like a Christian mythology version. There's just a bunch of stuff sitting in my Google Docs that I have to kind of piece together. Um, but yeah, prose is where I started and it is absolutely still the basis for everything I do. For Divine Intervention, we start every episode with a perspective where the archivist just goes and looks in somebody's window, basically, and sort of narrates what that person is thinking, what they're doing, what they know separate from what the players know in narrative. So I still absolutely love getting to just beat a metaphor to death. That's mm. great. And that's also like such a good tool for for being a novelist of being able to see the story or the world that you've built from different perspectives and bring that to life in a different way. And it's also, yeah, like you mentioned, like a very good DMs tool. Yeah. I'm, I'm really kind of stuck on the earn the ending concept. Mm. And I just wanted to go back to that a little and because I think... Like with campaigns, like do your campaigns earn their endings? And how do you know? How do you know with a campaign? That's something that feels more like a living environment than a novel. I think with campaigns, the players earn their ending. I can set up Mm -hmm. as much as I want. I can have as many plans as I want. But the people that I'm playing with are so creative and so intuitive that at least once a session, I am completely stumped and have to just take a minute to think about my life choices. So <laughs> that's I, every session, that's true. Every session. And I, as a, someone who was originally very rigid, it's been a learning curve, getting used to just not having an answer for things. But I think now that we're kind of in both the second season of both shows, it really is a question of understanding the players and understanding the characters what is important to these characters? What what small goals do they have? Things that are just for them. What do they not tell anybody else? And knowing those things helps me create a path they can walk down to get the ending that I have in mind. But if they should branch off or go in a different direction, my hope is that I understand the characters well enough that whatever end they come to at the end of an episode or the end of an arc is satisfying. It is something that feels true to the character and feels respectful of everything that the character has been through over the course of however many sessions. That's really interesting. I think like endings are hard for a lot of reasons and just, it's hard. It's hard to know. Are we done? I almost like writing for campaigns a little bit better because there's that element of I can plan it, but there someone is going to set off something and I'm just going to have to improvise with a novel. Earning the ending is really where that comes in with for me or, or with prose writing the end of a poem is usually really hard for me. So kind of nailing that idea of when you put the period at the end of the sentence, you have said the most important thing at the end. You have said the thing that is going to stick with them 
the rest of the day or the rest of the next hour, what have you. And that's what I try to keep in mind for endings is even if it's not the one I planned, making it something that will hold importance for them and that they will remember, whether it's moving forward in character or trying to decide how they want their character to grow in advance. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's there has to be some change. That's something right. that every, you know, every movie, TV show, uh, novel needs to have the characters and the protagonist go through some type of, you know, overcome some flaw or or figure something out, right? And and that's so oftentimes sometimes lost when we're just playing D&D campaigns because you're just like, oh, I'm just getting the next MacGuffin to get to the big bad guy at the end, right? Instead of realizing that, no, there needs to be some growth. There needs to be some some lessons learned along the way that aren't just experience points. <laughs> the biggest thing that I had to learn as a DM was that the characters are not a vehicle to tell the story. The story is a vehicle for the characters to operate in. And so my, I try to remove my hands as much as possible. I build the sandbox, I fill it with sand, and then I try to just step away and see what they do with what is there for them. But someone randomly brings a toy in with them and it's way cooler than anything I would have imagined. Um, so it, it is very much about giving them space to create and giving them space to decide things for themselves. I'm very big on consequences and I'm very big on like, don't go murder somebody in town because that's going to be on the test. That's going to come back. Um, <laughs> so there is this sense among all of the players of not acting recklessly. And I think that that has given them more motivation to really live as their characters because there are consequences, because, you know, we had somebody do a ritual and it went so bad that two people lost half their hit points immediately. Uh, it is very much a thing of like, because they believe I am able to push those consequences more because they are willing to either fail or to fail fantastically. It's a lot easier for me to guide them toward an end, but let them sort of be the agents of, of their own actions in the world. Yeah. And I love that. I, I had never, I've heard the metaphor for a sandbox many, many times, obviously, but that idea of players are going to bring their own toy into the sandbox yeah. and make it like, I've never kind of felt that before as viscerally as you just described it. I, Greg, I swear on my life, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> that I've I have always heard that metaphor, but it's never been so obvious, if that's the right word, than talking to you about how you run your games. Like for me too, that was like, yeah. Like it made me think about when you watch kids play and like you can leave out like um little stations for that, like here's maybe some sticks. And over here, we've got a bowl full of buttons. And over here, there's like, you know, just like very innocent things and just watching what they do with them. And every kid does something different with like, oh, a stick, like I'm going to use it as a sword. Or this one might be like, I'm going to use it, make it a bridge so that these little button people can walk across it or something. It's like the, the things that you are saying about how you create your worlds and how 
the players exist in them, it makes me feel like that too. Like it really is that whole sandbox analogy, like way more come to life, way more than I've ever heard it or seen it. It's pretty amazing. I'm absolutely in love with my players. I think that they are the greatest people on the face of the planet. They work so hard and they have created something much cooler than anything that I could have written by myself. And knowing that and being as grateful as I am for that, I try to put as much love and attention into the world as I would a child. I very much believe it was, I think it was in one of the first episodes of Adventuring Talk. Brennan Lee Mulligan was talking about the idea of creating a world that is moving when your players aren't around. And I think that that Mm, has really made the difference for me and for them is the idea that people are walking through these doors when you're not at the table. Conversations are being had, money is changing hands, what have you. Um, So every time they come back in, there's something new. There's a new person or there's an item or there's a secret to follow or a weird NPC that I just really felt like playing. Hmm. Um, and it, it, it has just turned into something so cool and so far beyond what I imagined it could be. As a DM, I go into every game, every weird concept I come up with, with no certainty that it's going to even work and just throw it at my players and they're the ones who make the magic happen. So... That's fantastic. Spoken like a true dungeon master. Right? That's so good. <laughs> Everybody can learn from that. Um, Absolutely. So you uh, have, you know, obviously we've been talking a lot about uh, divine intervention uh, here, but there are, there's a couple other fun stuff uh, going on. You want to talk a little bit about the Silt Versus? Yes. Um, the Silt Versus is one of my favorite podcasts, and I do not know how they found me, but <laughs> uh, I was brought on to play the role of... Um, the sister of Sid Wright, who is a radio host from season one. They have a fantastic spinoff called The Incredible Apotheosis of Sid Wright on their Patreon. Uh, and in a couple of weeks, that is where you will be able to hear me as his long-suffering kind of uh, backwoods sister. Nice. That's super cool. Very cool. It's literally a dream come true that I get to be any part of my favorite podcast. <laughs> that is awesome. And then I, I played a lot of Oregon Trail when I was a kid. Uh, so what's what's this about uh, a miniseries that you're doing about that? It is another uh, half-cocked <laughs> idea that I jammed together and asked some friends if they wanted to play. And the channel has gotten has taken a very historical tone lately. Um, it's part of a series that I'm calling A Night to Remember, which will mash the mechanics of good society and the mechanics of 10 candles Mm. and we'll go through a major historical event. Um, So down the line, there will be a night to remember Pompeii or a night to remember Titanic uh, in keeping with the theme. And it really is inspired by just sitting around in like a dusty 1990s classroom, watching one person play an eight bit game. (laughs) Uh, So there will be times where they have to like ford the river or they lose their supplies and things like that. But one of the people playing is a history major and knows so much more about it than I ever could. So we are actually following the route that the Donner Party took from Independence, Missouri to uh, Fort Sutter over the course of four weeks. Um, Our five players will be setting out from Independence, Missouri in the first week, getting to know each other, things like that. And then they will... Because the main mechanic of Ten Candles is that nobody survives, uh, end their game in what is now Donner Lake. 
so th- we just had our session zero for that and designed characters and figured out kind of traits and things. That starts on October 6th, and we are so ridiculously excited for our little history game and our little costumes and to just Aww. we all read the same book it wasn't even a requirement but we all read the same book about that time period and the donner party just kind of independently so i'm sure that's going to work its way in there too how cool Sweet. that sounds amazing that's i love yeah. that idea of blending like interest in a historical uh, event or topic and then gaming to to kind of bring it to life it's so awesome and i just hope at least one of the party gets dysentery. Oh, I'm sure. It's on the list. Somebody's got to get like dysentery, Quincy. They've got to eat hemlock, something like that. Oh, my God. They're going to ford the river. I like that you mentioned that too. Uh, so good. Well, that has been uh, an amazing uh, talk with you, Abaddon. Thank you so much for, for I don't know, just brightening our Inspiring. days. Inspiring. Yeah. Yes. Very, Thank very you again cool. for having me. If people want to find oh. out more about what uh, you're personally doing as well as Exquisite Corpse, what's the, the best way for them to, to find out? You can find me on Twitter at Abba Darlings, A-B-A Darlings, where I'm doing my level best to become the confessional poet of TTRPGs, <laughs> which I mostly mean I share my every single thought with Twitter, whether you want to see it or not. If you're not interested in that, which I don't blame you for, uh, at Exquisite C-T-T-R-P-G is the Exquisite Corpse Presents Twitter. We're very active. Uh, it's a very symbiotic relationship between us and the folks that follow our Twitter. So we play a lot of games and there's a lot of memes. We would love to have you there. That's awesome. All right. Yep. Well, you definitely got some followers from me. Uh, and uh, can't wait to see more of all this fun stuff and check out Oregon Trail and, and uh, you know, all of these amazing deities that you were describing. And now and I want to go. I'm going to go watch uh, Mommy Dearest. Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> wow. I have always loved the idea of coming up with fantastic new deities and, and, and gods. Uh, but the idea of you know weaving it in with a D and D campaign that's just creating these gods in a modern setting like what? So um, good. I kid you not. I I am into the story. I would read it cover to cover. Yeah. Have you read American Gods? It. No. Oh well, then you should read that. Okay, I'll start there. <laughs> start there. It's you know it's a, it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a big novel. Uh, but it's amazing uh, and pulls on a lot of these these uh, same thoughts. But I, I love uh, the way Abaddon uh, was bringing in uh, all of the players and stuff. Like, that's that's not in, in Neil Gaiman, so don't worry about it. Maybe you just yes. read this one. Yes. Well, I'll read Neil Gaiman first, and that'll give uh, that'll give her time to write my, my novel. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was a big ask, okay? I mean, just just the novel, please. They're, they're going to write it up, and it's going to be amazing. Uh, go uh, watch more about that and see everything that's happening at Exquisite Corpse uh, Presents. Yes. And then uh, you should pre-order Dragon Talk. Uh, welcome to Dragon Talk, if you haven't already. It's do on the it, Amazons, the it. University of Iowa Press, from your local bookstore they have all the means to be able to pre-order that and get it ready for you when it comes out on december 6th yep make it so i might do it from paper boat here in west seattle i am definitely gonna get a copy from them too probably gonna get a copy from pegasus and then and and the junction as well all the local bookstores i'm just gonna make Uh, orders everywhere and i'm gonna put them in your name is that okay that's totally fine you know what's great about pre-ordering is that you forget and then all of a sudden a gift arrives for yourself yeah. So treat yourself. 
they, why do they call it pre-ordering when it really should be pre-gifting? I know. You're pre-gifting. I mean, a book is a gift regardless of the recipient. Uh, I'm going to put that on a bookmark. Dude, that's like a let magnet. Me go, let me just go. <laughs> that's, that's so profound. Are we talking like space whales again? Dude. <laughs> Dude. That's so chill, that magnet. Dude, books are like a gift, man. Wait, how do magnets work in wild space? <laughs> That's crazy, dude. <laughs> You're like blowing my mind. Are those kids living on my back? <laughs> That's gnarly. Wait, hang on. I'll get them off for you. Swoop. <laughs> <laughs> no. Space whale. <laughs> All right. Well, when Spell Jams 2, the album comes <sighs> out, there will be Space Whales, the song. S- space whales are a thing. Mm, mm, mm. Space whales. They can sing. <laughs> You're a bard. I you really are it. inspired. It's great. I, I do have inspiration today for sure. You for sure do. Somebody uh, if you are inspired punchy. by listening to this episode of Dragon Talk, why don't you give us like a you know a good review? Like a give rate us. We haven't asked for that in a long time. No. Maybe that will help uh, get more people to find out about what's going on in the world of Dungeons and Dragons in the community. So if you are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or the Spotify's, or any of the various places or platforms where you listen to this podcast, again, give us a good review. Five stars. Why not? Smash that subscribe button. That's what they all say, right? Like Mm -hmm. and subscribe. Like and subscribe to Dragon Talk. And spread the word. It really helps. That was like a little flourish I did. You couldn't see it at home, but there was definitely like a xylophone there was. flourish I did. It was very, yes, it was. <laughs> and um, also in the reviews, you might want to talk about how great Greg Tito's segues are. Oh, I'm on a segue right now. Props. No room for me on No that. room for you in my segue. All right. But there is room for you to follow me on Twitter. I am at Greg Tito. I don't think there's any, there's there's no limit to the amount of followers that you can have. So there is room <laughs> still, uh, and it's uh, at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. What about you, Shelly Moo at Shelly Moo on the Twitters and the Instagrams? So get on in there. Get on like, there. Follow Greg and I like like vines on a Kendori's back. Wow, you really are inspired. I am inspired. I think it's ever since I sent that email. Yeah, you've been club. You've been walking on a cloud in the astral sea. Mm. Yes. Well, Junkie Touches is walking along, following uh, three very official-looking folks as they are walking into uh, the city. You had just been at a dance performance on the streets of the Radiant Citadel after drinking your first drink here. That was named the Junkie Two Shoes. Served by a bartender who works at the bar called the Drunky Two-Shoes. And so you're trying to find out about that and perhaps any information about your brother, Daryl, who supposedly founded this bar uh, many, many years ago, maybe even centuries ago. All right. So, yeah, you're walking. Uh, and there were, yes, there were these three individuals who were kind of going in the direction that the woman pointed uh, is the kind of center center of government for uh, this settlement. 
All right, I'm just following these guys. You said you were. Uh, so yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, you yeah. see them. You see them going. They, um, did I describe them before? I don't remember if I did. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I did. So they looked like the way I described before. Yep. And there was something about that description that made Drunky say, "I want to follow these gentlemen." Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, all right. um, and yeah, they're going towards the area. It looks like the, where the large crystal kind of uh, shoots out of the middle of the. Oh, the I want right to see if. Okay. I'm Which, just going to like just be very inconspicuously following them. Okay. Do you want to roll a stealth check? Or are you trying to stay inconspicuous for reals? Or are you just trying to. No, just I'm just, I'm just not casual? drawing attention to myself. <laughs> like you normally would. Okay. So it's important that you know <laughs> that you're not doing your <laughs> no, default. I like tuck my my ears into my a okay. hat or something. Um, so they're walking along and they uh, they don't seem to be really concerned about looking behind them or anything like that. So they just kind of go forward. Uh, you kind of see them. Um, one uh, is is chatting with the other with one of the the, the leader, the one that's in the middle. Um, but I want you're a little bit too far away. You can't really hear them. So I scurry on up a little. Okay. Um, uh, make me a perception check because they are, as you get closer, you realize they're talking under their breath. Oh, okay. Very perceptive. Hmm. 16. Ooh, okay. With the 16, you are able to, uh, catch some phrases and the, uh, shorter one that is not the leader says, are you sure she's going to be able to see us? And the leader responds, of course, yes, once we present uh, to her uh, officiant or what we have discovered, I am confident she'll let us in right away. All right. Oh, yeah. What do you do? I'm intrigued. I continue following. Okay. Um, it takes a couple of moments. You see uh, more of the sights of the city. It does not look anything like Waterdeep uh, at all, uh, it, you know, which has a lot of buildings that were designed for weather and things like that. This one is certainly much more green, a lot of plants, a lot of growth around there. The architecture does not look like anything you recognize uh, from Waterdeep, but it does have a few... Um, uh, motifs that you recognize from from Chult, from from where you oh, and Daryl yeah. grew up. Uh, some of you are like, oh yeah, that kind of rem- that archway kind of reminds me of of uh, some of the settlements in that area. Um, various other performances, other things going on. Uh, people Lovely. asking for um, uh, you know uh, selling random things. You see, uh, actually, a few times uh, th- these crystals. Uh, that at the first you just thought they were in the firmament around you, but several of them as you're walking, again, it's like about 10 minutes or 15 minutes that you're walking, um, several of these crystals kind of come down and uh, meet at the surface of somewhere. You're not really sure where. You don't see exactly where they land, but they come down to uh, the surface, and then you see another one kind of they're, go up. They're like actually moving. They're actually moving, yeah. And these, and you realize that the crystals are almost like building Elevator? shaped, uh, yeah, building size. Like they're they're enough to to hold quite a bit. Are people in them? You can't see. They 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 come down as crystals and they move up as crystals. This is bizarre. Yeah. Um, I are like, and that these three gentlemen are continuing to walk. With a purpose? Yes. Somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. They're striding, you know, New York pace. They're just going right to where they're going. Mm, okay. Am I anywhere near where that the the mother told me the 
the records office was, by the way? Yeah, yeah, I? they were going in the direction, and they they uh, seemed okay. to be following that where she pointed to. Okay, so I'm just I I'm gonna keep following them, but if I happen to see this place, I'm gonna probably turn off and go there. But in the meantime, I'll continue following and listening. Okay. Um, they after that exchange, they don't say too much, and uh, they actually start to. Uh, I wouldn't say like heavily breathe, but they are, you know, they're walking fast enough at a brisk enough pace that conversation is a little bit harder. Oh. But they do eventually get to uh, the the foot of this very large crystal uh, that shoots up into the firmament. And uh, at the base of it, you see there is a doorway or a large kind of archway carved into the crystal itself. Uh, and they stride right towards it and inside. Hold the door! <laughs> there is no door. It's an open archway. Uh, but you do you say do you say hold the door out to them? Mm-hmm, I do. Okay. And the small one like looks back at you and you see it is a, uh, a halfling or a gnome. Uh, uh, yeah, you should do notice uh, with your high perception uh, point to your ears. So you think it might be a gnome. Um, uh, look back at you kind of quizzically. Uh, she's got green eyes, um, blondish hair, and um, it looks like she's wearing like kind of official looking clothes you're not really sure what it is but it looks like it looks like a uniform oh and none of the oh okay well I'm just gonna run right in there okay she looks back and then kind of goes forward and then you follow right along thank you and you will see what is inside next time oh fun <laughs>